2: I know a place where we can go to lay the troubles down, eating your soul. I know a place where mercy flows, take the stains, make it wider than snow. Like a tide, it is rising up deep inside a current that moves and makes you come alive.
0: Vein water that brings a dead delight. This is Crosswalk. With Gino Geraci. We're going down to the
1: river, down to the river. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. If you'd like to join me via phone, you can call 303 873 1935. 303 873 1935. Happy to take your call. And, um, so much to talk about. One of the things I wanted to touch on was the subject of Sharia law. What is Sharia law? And happy to talk about that. But before we went to the break, uh, producer Blake, you asked me a question about um, Jews who um, may have been sympathizers or, supportive or even commanders in in Nazi Germany. So so I don't misrepresent you tell me exactly what it was that you were asking me.
3: Yeah. So I guess I'm asking you if there were any Jewish people that were uh committing the killings of their own people. You know, that that's a a
1: difficult question and the way that I would answer it is there's good evidence that there were Jews who fought for Nazi Germany. Now, to your question, um, are these willing participants, in other words, are these Jews who say, I ideologically believe that it's a good idea to kill all the Jews or the Jews are to blame for the German um, national Con, uh, conditions that they were experiencing. Some people, scholars and historians think of these people as traitors. Some think of them as survivors or cowards. Some think of them as being brave or fools. Um, but, you know, if you were asking the question, well, where? if you're a Jew, where's the safest place in Nazi Germany? In a cellar? In an attic, in a forest, or at home with a with an Aryan or a German spouse, and the answer seems to be: well, the safest place for a Jew would be in the Wehrmacht, or the Kriegsmarine, or the Luftwaffe. You know, their air force. And so there were Jewish people who were ethnically Jewish, who were um, who saw themselves in terms of being German citizens and, um, and so it's a matter of historical record that thousands of full Jews and more than a hundred thousand part Jews. And that means they either, you know, they were biracial in the sense that either their mother or their father was Jewish joined the military and fought in the military and, um, so that's, that's one of those sad, sad situations, but German Jews were cultured. So uh, again, the way that I would think about this, Blake, is they didn't see themselves first and foremost as a Jew. They saw themselves first and foremost as a patriot.
3: So right. imagine they, you're, they thought so, they were more German than Jewish.
1: Exactly. And so imagine the ones who trace their roots in Germany back for generations. Their father was German. His father was German. His father's father was German. His father's 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 father was German. Now, even though they were culturally Jews or ethnically and culturally Jews, they saw themselves deeply as Germans. So imagine, you know, we apply that same thing to Muslims or to Jews um, even Christians in the United States of America, where you go, well, do you, you know, there was a very, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Chariots of Fire, and where um, the sprinter in Chariots of Fire um, wants to become a, a missionary to China, but he refuses to run on Sunday because he's a Christian. And he, in his in his worldview, he sees running on sunday as being um distasteful if you will to god or maybe even wrong and so this very famous olympic athlete refuses to run on sunday and in the movie the german or excuse me the british um citizen says to him well in my time you're british first and you're christian second so this is not a, 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 an idea that's unique um, in history. There are many, many people who would have hold that view. But, yeah, at what point does a human being say, I am first and foremost ideologically this? Yeah, and, so
3: and, I guess the question also is, is nationalism good?
1: Well, I, I think the way that I would answer that question is from a biblical standpoint, I think that nationalism is good because globalism is bad in what sense? Well, remember the judgment that takes place in the book of, of, um, of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 6 and then in, in Genesis chapter 12, where they build a tower, the Tower of Babel. And all the people are in one place. They all speak the same language. They all have the same culture. They all have the same outlook, if you will. And but But God has told them to go out into the world and to populate the world. And they go, no, we're fine. We want to be right here. Um, we want to be a singular group of people with a singular language doing what we want. We don't want to obey God, and God judged them. So the Tower of Babel, in a sense, was a judgment and a scattering of the people so that, again, they have independent languages, they have independent people groups, if you will, and geographical uh, places. So so in, in my view... Nash nations and nationalism is a kind of a way to retard human rebellion that when people get together it, it. it So imagine you're, you're coming from the perspective. Well, if we all get together, wouldn't the world be a better place? Yes. I think, I think there's an argument that could be made that if we all get together, the world would be a better place. But I think from a biblical standpoint, an argument could be made that if we all got together, the world would unite in its rebellion and disobedience to god mm. and so that 's the that 's the the teeter totter balancing act. remember what nationalism is it 's loyalty and devotion to a nation so is it wrong biblically to be loyal and uh, care about your nation. Is patriotism in and of itself wrong? I don't think so. When does it become wrong when, you, when we say stuff like my country right or wrong? So so what what are you saying? Well, I'm going to be loyal to my country even if it means murdering Jews or murdering Palestinians or murdering Muslims, or murdering homosexuals. Now, you might think homosexual behavior is wrong, but is it a good idea, like Muslims? some Muslims believe, to take them to the top of a building and throw them off the building? So is it is it different where you go, I live in a world where I, I think that homosexual behavior is wrong, But I also live in a world where I don't want to live in a government that that can throw homosexuals off the top of a roof.
3: Or even condone it.
1: You see what I'm saying? Mm. So Israel was a nationalistic culture, and that was God's intent. He called Abraham to leave his home, travel to a land, and that he was going to found a nation and a people group. So I, I think that the Bible sort of in a very real sense, supports nationalism and um, argues against globalism.
0: This is Gino Geraci. This is Crosswalk with Gino Geraci.
1: Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Happy, happy, happy to take your call. 303-873-1935. 303-873-1935. You know, at the beginning of the last hour, I had a lot to say about character. And, you know, I had an interview with Dr. Don Sweeting from Colorado Christian University. And, of course, uh, producer Blake will be putting up our programs at ninety four seven f m the word you can go and and listen to uh the programs once uh we we've we're done with them if you will and um you know one of the things I wanted to uh talk a little bit about was the idea of sharia law and um and should, we be, should Christians be concerned about Sharia law? And it's going to be very, very difficult for you to be concerned about Sharia law if you don't even know what it is. And so I might talk a little bit about that. So we have to define what Sharia law is. Sharia, as as it's expressed in the Quran and the Sunnah, which is the divine law, the Sunnah is a record of the life and the examples of the Islamic prophet Muhammad. So the Sunnah is primarily contained, contained in what what Muslims call the hadith or the reports of Muhammad's sayings, his actions, his approval or disapproval of things, his demeanor, his status, and so Sharia is interpreted by Islamic judges who May be influenced by religious leaders or imams. So imams are Muslim teachers. So in secular Muslim states like Mali and Kazakhstan, and to a, to a certain extent Turkey, which is getting more and more fundamental in its outlook, Sharia is limited to personal and family matters. So countries like Pakistan, Indonesia, Afghanistan, Egypt, Sudan, Morocco. They're strongly, strongly influenced by Sharia. But the ultimate authority lies with their constitution and the rule of law. Saudi Arabia and some of the Gulf states enforce classical Sharia. So Iran has a parliament that legislates in a manner consistent with Sharia. So traditionally, according to Islam, the way of submission, traditionally the Islamic ummah, and ummah is an Arabic word, that describes the community or the nation. So the Ummah is what we in the church would call the congregation or the community. So when in Arabic, when Islamic people talk about the Ummah, they're talking about the collective community of Muslims. And it's divided into three regions. The territory of Islam, Dar al-Islam, The territory of peace, Dar al uh, uh, Sul, sul. you know, we get the word salam, Sul, and the territory of war, Dar al Harb. So in regions like Pakistan, Iran, Libya, Islamic law is assumed to be the, the basis of government. The second territory represents. Regions like India, Africa, where Muslims are the minority, but they're permitted for the most part to live in peace and practice Islam freely. The rest of the world compromises the third territory, Dar al-Kharb, enemy territory. So where's the enemy territory? Well, Israel. Israel is considered the enemy territory. Where else is the enemy territory? Parts of Europe. Where else? The United States of America. So the rest of the world is considered Dar al Harb, the territory of war. And so there's a way of thinking about this as an ideological battleground where you get to contest with the group using speech, persuasion, and then you have the theater of war or holy war, jihad, struggle. It's waged against all non-Muslims or infidels. That's the word kafir. So how long does this war last? It lasts until kafir, the the infidel, is absorbed into the world of Islam. No systematic exposition of Muslim beliefs appears in either the Quran or the Hadith. Instead, such exposition is found in the compilation of what's called Islamic canon law. That's Sharia. Now in Islam, Sharia is considered divinely established and it enjoins on all adherents a strict obedience to all aspects of life. And the principal source for the Islamic law is the Quran consensus, Ijma, and then reason. So the Shiites reject the consensus and substitute what is for them the divinely appointed, infallible, spiritual guide, imam. And so there's aspects of Sharia law that should concern Christians. Like what? Like jihad. Jihad is the holy war against the infidels of the world. This is why when you're reading news reports or seeing news reports of what's going on in Gaza and uh, Israel, the Gazans will refer to themselves as martyrs. So here's the big fat question that is really a troubling question, a difficult question, a challenging question are muslims obligated or obliged to kill the infidel now remember an infidel kafir is a non muslim many muslims think that killing an infidel guarantees a ticket to paradise this is not like a 80s rock song two tickets to paradise But, again, some people will say, well, is that extremism? Is that extremism or is that mainstream Islamic thought? So another aspect of Sharia law that's concerning is what's called apostasy. What is that? These are people who renounce Islam and change their religion. So if you're a man or a woman who says, I don't want to be a Muslim anymore. What does the Quran say and what does Sharia law require? It requires death. Conversion is considered blasphemy, it carries the death penalty. Distributing Christian literature. Can result in a five year prison sentence under Sharia law. So, jihad, apostasy, and criticism of Islam. The death penalty applies to Muslims who criticize Muhammad, the Quran, or Sharia law. Severe penalties also apply to Christians who speak out against Islam. Well, what about freedom of worship? What about other things? Well, I'll talk about that when we come back. 303-873-1935. I'll be back. four seven.
0: Now, back now to Crosswalk I with Gino grave.
1: Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. The number's 303-873-1935. 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Is it Farid? Did I say your name right? Farid?
2: Yeah, hello, Mr. Gino, I'm Fareed.
1: Great, how can I help you?
2: Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, actually what you talked about, the Islam, that was pretty, pretty good, very good information. I'm a Muslim. Yeah well, and, uh, well
1: I I hope yeah. here here's my goal Farid my goal is to not misrepresent Islam I want to make sure that what I'm yeah. saying is correct not incorrect now and as you because yeah. you are a muslim you also realize that many muslims have very different ideas about many things and so yeah. so it's not fair to say all muslims believe everything <laughs> Um, but so so the challenge for me is to try to be as fair as possible
2: yeah so of course I wanted to add uh, about this uh, what you said radical Islam and about jihad what you said I want to add that of course most of the Muslims don't believe on uh, what is called jihad except some uh, religious group and some radical religious group uh, otherwise most of the Muslim even majority of the Muslim they don't believe in this jihad or what you said that they want to fight against it.
1: see this is good to know the let yeah. me ask you a question Farid it, uh, yeah. it, uh, in your opinion how many Muslims are on the planet Earth?
2: Uh, Excuse me, how many Muslims on the planet are?
1: Earth. Uh, So Uh, how many Muslims in the world?
2: Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, I'm not sure. I I don't know exactly how many Muslims. That might be around a billion or more or less.
1: I think you're right. So let's go with a billion more or less. Out of the billion, more or less, how many Muslims believe that they're obligated to kill the infidel?
2: Yeah, uh, I think a very little minority. Would you say,
1: would you say 10%? Even
2: maybe 10 or less. Yeah.
1: Okay. So if it's 10%, that's a hundred million Muslims believe that in, that they're obligated to kill the infidel. But according to Uh, you, that's not the majority. So if we're talking about Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, where the large, uh, Pakistan, um, India, where the largest pop, where the largest uh, population centers of Muslims, would you say they by and large do not Embrace the, so, so I think we could say that jihad means struggle. They would embrace the spiritual idea that human beings have to struggle against what's evil. They have to struggle to do what's good.
2: Yeah, 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 you're right. So uh, literally, yes, go ahead. So
1: have I, ha, have I got that wrong?
2: Yeah, uh, literally jihad means to struggle, to work hard and uh, uh that word means that but of course we have a minority groups some radical muslims that they believe that jihad means to fight again against non-muslims i want to say that in western countries like in the united states and europe it should be preached or it should be announce to the people, to the non-Muslims, that they should know that majority of the Muslims, big majority of the Muslims, they don't believe in this superstitious idea, in this something nonsense.
1: Can I ask you a hard question as a Muslim? Can I ask you a hard
2: question? And let me add one uh, little thing more, and then, yeah, of course. And if there are some groups, I believe that maybe they are politically motivated to do something.
1: Even not, among those groups. Okay, not religiously motivated, politically motivated.
2: Politically, yeah, of course. You're right.
1: So, can I ask you kind of a hard question?
2: Yeah, yes, yeah, you can. As, as
1: we think about Ummah, the Muslim community. Yes this minority that you're making reference to, the minority that you're making reference to, yes. does this minority ever endanger other Muslims who don't agree with them?
2: <laughs> yes, very much, very much. You know that uh, uh, this minority, even among the Muslim groups, different sects, they call themselves, they call themselves that they are non-Muslim. They reject them. They call them heretic. And uh, they say that they're, they're, what they believe is wrong. For example, among the radical Sunni Muslims, they believe that Shias are not Muslim, true Muslim. And so, you know so that for this the, I... Yeah. I this okay, for the, listener,
1: yeah, for the listener who doesn't understand what you just said, who are the Shia and who are the Sunni?
2: So two, uh, well, uh, major parts of Islam are Muslims. Of course, Sunni is a big majority, but Shia is a minority among the Muslims.
1: So which countries would be, would you say, are predominantly Shia? Would you say Iran? Yeah. Would you yeah. say Saudi yeah. Arabia? Wh- who, no. Who, uh,
2: who? Predominantly, Iran is a Muslim, con- uh, a Shia Muslim. Uh, Iraq, uh-huh. yeah, uh-huh. Iraq, uh, uh, in Syria, uh, some of the Arabic countries like Bahrain, uh, but in the Yemen, I think I'm not sure about Yemen. They are a bit different. And and the rest of the Islamic countries, Shi'as are minority. They are not majority.
1: Can I can I ask you a question? Why why does the Shia think that the Sunni are apostate, that they aren't true Muslims, that they aren't living true to the Islam uh, to the Islamic revelation.
2: Well this thing, I don't believe this thing. I don't believe that mostly Shia uh, call the Sunnis uh, untrue Muslim. Among the Shia there is also a minority that they believe that uh, Sunnis are not. Uh, true Muslims, uh, but most of the uh, even the majority of the Shi'as they believe that Sunnis are also Muslim. As most of the Sunnis believe that Shi'as are also Muslim. Help so
3: me as, under- At the
2: beginning, I mentioned. At, at the beginning, I mentioned that there is a minority group that. Uh, Believes radically and only accept themselves, not others. Even among the Muslim groups, they call only themselves the true Muslims. Would you say? And this say, is something dangerous.
1: Yeah. Would you say? Would you say that the Ayatollah Khomeini is representative of Islam or not representative of Islam?
2: Uh, well, I. Category, categorically say that he is not the representative of Muslim.
1: Okay, that's. Yeah. Thank, thank you for calling. I believe
2: that. Yeah, I believe that he was just a political, a politician, encowered himself by the name of uh, Islam and Muslim leader. He was a politician just for power, for. Well, but
1: but not I for think. the health and safety and well-being of of Islam
2: the word. 7
0: the word. crosswalk with we Gino Geraci Hey welcome we back
1: ladies and gentlemen <laughs> The number's 303-873-1935 we've come full circle we've talked about Jews, we've talked about Muslims. We've even talked about Christians. And one of the things I kind of want to sort of shift to in this last segment um is this understanding about radicalism or what it means to be radical. And obviously however you define that term it's going to have an effect on your outlook. And so, you know, we use the term extreme or radical sometimes to describe people who don't share our political, religious, or ideological outlook. So the question becomes, should a Christian be a radical? Now, it all depends on how you define the word radical the word radical as it's applied to human behavior can be positive or negative depending on your perspective or your viewpoint so imagine just for purposes of discussion we define radical as one expressing a strict adherence to a world view that is at extreme odds with the cultural norm. So when I use the term radical, I'm not talking about the kind of extremism that results in sinful behavior. I'm talking about expressing strict adherence to a worldview that is at extreme odds with the cultural norm in my understanding of worldview and radical, historical biblical Christianity, mainstream historical biblical Christianity is at extreme odds with the cultural norm. If normal is in the middle, then a radical would be a person at either end of the spectrum. Now, it's possible that some people would consider Mother Teresa to be a radical in her extreme self-denial, in her ministry to the poorest of the poor. We could think of Saddam Hussein as a radical in his violent enforcement of his religious and political agenda. Now, Fareed was right when he said, just like everyone, there are people who have a religious agenda and there are people who have a political agenda. Dangerously, there are religious people with political agendas. <laughs> and there are probably people with political
3: agendas
1: who have who are hoping for a religious outcome.
3: Hey, Gino. Sure. What? Uh, so, sorry to interrupt here, but in my opinion, what a radical is when it comes to religion is someone who's so extreme in their religion that they end up doing the exact opposite of what it actually stands for. That's not a bad
1: definition. It's not my definition, but it's not a bad definition because, again, if if for whatever reason you go, I think, uh, you know, my view is that you shouldn't kill people, and I'm going to kill you to make my point.
3: <laughs> right, yeah.
1: So or, uh, so to your point, imagine you're a person who says, I don't believe in divorce, so I'm going to kill you.
3: Yeah, I was even thinking, I mean, even along the lines of following Jesus or Muhammad or Moses, if well, you're, uh, yeah, if you're following so closely and you look at other people who aren't following and hate them because they aren't following... Right, especially
1: if you come from – so we're back to what I think is a a more comprehensive way of thinking about it is expressing adherence to a worldview that is at extreme odds with the cultural norm. So imagine in, in the culture that we live in, if someone hurts you, you hurt them back. And in Christianity, you go, no, that that's not what Christians do. We don't hurt people who hurt us. Or, you know, you talk about turning the other cheek Mm -hmm. or loving your enemy. Mm -hmm. Now, but not everyone shares a religious outlook like historical biblical Christianity. So imagine you're talking about a world religion that uh, will burn you at the stake if you don't um, adhere to their, their view. So... To your point, you're exactly right. If your view is to love your enemy, how can killing your enemy be an act of love? How can killing them be in their best interest? Wouldn't. So, so I, I don't, I don't think your 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 definition is bad. Where you go, well, but and then apply it to every worldview: the New Age, secularism, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism. Being a human, being an atheist, being an agnostic, whatever it is that you are. And you go, what is it that you believe about right and wrong, about character, about beauty, about goodness? So imagine you have a view about beauty that requires you to destroy what's beautiful. And so in Islam, the radical Islam, they blow up world monuments because they think they're honoring Allah. So you're right. I think that however we define the word, that's how we're going to be able to have a conversation. And it's been my experience that whoever defines the terms will usually win the argument, <laughs> but Many, But to your point, and I think this is an excellent point, Blake, many people have used the name of Jesus to inflict terror and pain and persecution and even genocide. So to your point, hopefully to my point as well, if you embrace a kind of Christianity, that results in terror and persecution and genocide, then we're back to, well, maybe that isn't biblical Christianity. Maybe that's something else. Because that form of radicalism was never condoned by Jesus. But according to my definition, Jesus was himself a radical. His message of love and forgiveness and mercy Was that consistent with the accepted views of the religious leaders of his day? The answer is no. He refused to fight back when he was attacked. To allow Peter to defend himself with violence in Matthew chapter 26. To condemn the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. These were all radical acts for the time and the culture. And so one reason some people turned away from Christ was his requirement, at least in one person's uh, circumstance, to give up everything for his sake. It was just too radical. In Luke 18, he says, hey, the one thing you need, you need to give what you have to the poor and come and follow me. And the guy said, I can't go there. I can't do that. It's interesting to me that Jesus didn't ask every single person to give up everything and follow him. But he did ask that particular person because apparently Jesus knew something about him that maybe nobody else knew. But Blake, as always, thanks. Good job today. (laughs) Thank you, Gino. This is Gino Geraci. Thanks for joining me. Lord willing, and the crick don't rise. I'll be back tomorrow taking your calls, answering your questions.